How's it going, Katanning? We are finally back. It's been uh, quite a break, but this is the return of the Katanning podcast. Have with me today uh, a good friend of mine, Dr. Ron Schaefer. Uh, man, I don't even know where to start with your life because you've been you've done so many things and a uh, very accomplished man. And so I don't know if you tell us a little bit about yourself, your history in Katanning, all those things. Okay, I'm a local fellow. I um, lived in Katanning for five years of my life up in Wilson Avenue, Wick City. Yeah. So um, I'm very rooted in this area. And uh, then we moved out to Center Hill out on Freeport Road. Oh, yeah. When I was a five-year-old kid. Uh-huh. So I've been around here my entire life, traveled the world, taught in Katanning at the IUP campus uh, for some 12 years, then transferred over to Indiana. Wow. Um, I love the area. I, I'm, I'm very rooted here. I think my mother gave me roots and wings. I once said to someone, uh, the, the roots, the feeling of Armstrong County but the wings to aspire travel and flight and, and all kinds of wonderful things. So yeah. Kind of... Yeah. So you've been, I mean, I, I just, uh, every time that I talk to you, I just walk away kind of amazed because all the just information that you have, not only with local history, but American history and you've traveled all over the world. And, um, I don't know, just seems, it seems like you've had a, a, a wonderful opportunity and a, and a really blessed life. Yeah. I'd like to synthesize yeah. and integrate. Yeah, uh, I've had a lot of good experiences. God has blessed me above what I should have been blessed. But yeah. I take those experiences, a lot of learning, a lot of reading. I just have an insatiable quest for learning, as many people do. Mm-hmm. And somehow it just becomes a composite. And, and then I like to try to get that back out in my writing and in my lectures. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been fascinating for me to get to know you over the last few years. I know um, the most recent project now is uh, since you've retired, you began writing a series of novels about our area. And the very first one I know you have with you there, uh, The Rose and the Serpent. Um, That's what we're going to talk about a little bit today and kind of relate that back to Armstrong County and all those kinds of things. So, you know, how did you get started on this endeavor? It's going to be, is it seven books? It will be seven. I finished six. I envision a seven novel saga. I worked at the uh, Winfield Mushroom Mine as a college kid, one of several jobs to get me through college. Yeah. I was fascinated by it. That's an underground quarry of 150 miles. Oh, my. And those tunnels go everywhere, and they have big, big rooms. And I actually, maybe we'll read that passage later, how it was converted into the mushroom mine. Yeah. By the time I worked there in the late 60s, it was a thriving operation. It had been operational for decades by then. But I enjoyed working there, mm-hmm. and I conceived the idea of writing a love story with that unique setting, and I actually made a journal entry that I would one day write a novel using that as my primary setting, and Armstrong County as well. Yeah. Couldn't get at it, too busy, you know, doing stuff, being a professor, you name it. But once I retired, I started the writing, so... It's been exciting. Yeah, I, I, don't, I love that. And I, I had the opportunity to write kind of one of your first drafts, I think, uh, yes, of, the, of the first several novels. And so um, have a little bit of context there. But I love the story. Uh, so you you had this idea how many years ago to, to start? 1967. Wow. The, the idea has been with me for 51 years. And while I didn't write one word toward the novel, it was always percolating in my brain. And there were times when it would get so intense, I'd make journal entries about the novel. Mm-hmm. I was in Taiwan once. I filled virtually a notebook of thoughts on the novel, what it will do, 
what it will accomplish, what it will be about, and so on. And that was good because I was getting deeper into the characters, deeper into the themes. And it was a wonderful gestation period. So that once I sat down to write, the hard work was, was done in a sense. Yeah. Because it was just so clear in my mind how to do it. I just fill in the, the blanks once I start writing. Yeah. So if like if anyone listening today takes nothing else, it's that you know your dreams can last fifty years before you <laughs> before they actually come into fruition. Uh, that is amazing because I I would assume that most people would have kind of put that off the that would have fallen off the back burner by now. Yeah. Um, but for you, it like never that dream never died, and I I don't know I just love that that it's if, coming out now. I think I think there's a big point there for all people in life. I mean things can deepen, they can mature, they can get richer as the years go by. I mean, I look at Shakespeare's early tragedies, even something like Romeo and Juliet. It's a wonderful, famous tragedy, but that was written five or six years before the great, great tragedies. And while that story could have been up there with Hamlet and King Lear and so on, actually it was written before Shakespeare's craft had developed to the full extent. Yeah. I think what's happened with my novels is, had I written earlier when I wanted to and I was so full of them, I don't think they would have been the rich novels I've tried to make them, because they really do reflect my philosophy and my experiences and so on. Yeah. I think it would have been premature to try to do it way back. Yeah. Well, God's timing is perfect, right? God's timing is always perfect, He, he, yes. he gives us the right moment and the right moment in time, and here we are yeah. in the right moment. So um, I love your quote about your mother, too, that she gave you roots and she gave you wings. I'm assuming that's why you've chosen Armstrong County as your backdrop. I mean, with all the places yeah. you've traveled in the world, yeah. you could have written this about anywhere, right? Yeah. I love this area. Yeah. Uh, I've been blessed to travel the world, but I keep coming back home and loving it with every return. And I've had professors, um, our audience maybe would enjoy hearing this. I've had professors literally from around the world and certainly all over the United States say, They've never met kinder, better people than Southwestern PA. I hear that again and again. I love that. It really is nice because I think we, we just don't realize how unique of a culture we are here in Southwestern PA. Yeah. Well, and I think we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more because I think this is a very underrated area of the, of the world. Yes, um, I and, agree. And uh, that's kind of the whole point of this channel and the podcast and all that kind of stuff. But I do want to talk a little bit about the book. You've got kind of little snippets of, uh, I think the most fascinating thing for our readers since or our listeners and your readers will be, a lot of them are local and, yes. and all the, a lot of the descriptions of the local places. The story uh, is fascinating, by the way, but I was hoping that you'd share a little bit, maybe if you had an excerpt from about the mushroom mine or something um, like that, like you talked about. Yes, yes, I do. Yeah, I, I, let me talk about that a little bit. In 1896, a quarrying operation commenced to mine the rich limestone deposits in Butler and Armstrong counties in western PA. By the time the Buffalo Stone Mine had completed the quarrying enterprise some 30 years later in 1926, a maze of underground corridors and huge cathedral-sized rooms had been carved out, an underground city beneath the lush rolling hills, as the locals called it. Mm -hmm. The labyrinth of quiet stillness totaled some 150 pitch-black miles. At its height, the limestone quarrying operation produced 600 tons of limestone per day and approximately, approximately 900,000 tons a year. The place was alive with 200 scurrying employees and the raucous noise of the loud equipment. By 1937, the ingenious idea of growing mushrooms in these underground chambers where the temperatures hovered consistently in the mid-50s, had been conceived. 
By the next year, a unique system for growing mushrooms had commenced in Western PA. And I go on to talk about that a little bit. Um, Jude and Corey enjoy working in this unique environment. By the time this operation had hit its full stride years later, some 1,300 employees were producing a record 54 million pounds of mushrooms annually. Wow. So it's a huge operation. Yeah. The operation was proudly hailed as one of the unique manufacturing operations in the nation, and at its height, the world's largest mushroom-growing plant. So Jude and Corey enjoyed being part of a really unique operation. Yeah. Now, Jude and Corey are the two main characters Jude of your Corey book. Jude and two lovers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, our readers, our listeners won't understand all that. Um, they were lovers five years earlier. I actually... Maybe I'll just read this little paragraph Yeah, absolutely. Here. Yep. After a painful five-year separation, I'm reading the back of the book here, Jude and Corey joyfully reconcile, but as in earlier years, are pitted against the brilliant and evil Abe Bedone, more intelligent than Hannibal Lecter, and even more scheming. Bedone plots again to destroy the lovers, beleaguered by their own psychic devastation and past traumas. They battle both Abe chicanery and the carnal stooges, like Macho Strongman Duke Manningham, whom Abe manipulates to do his bidding. Though intelligent and spiritual, Jude and Corey face impossible odds, which they learn through their fire-tested faith can only be defeated sovereignly. Yeah. And so you have these, these two lovers set in Armstrong County, this kind of beautiful picture of our area, and then they're, it's like against all odds, right? They're... They're coming back together and uh, kind of that, that story. That's part one of that. Yeah, and it's, it's fascinating to me, Andy, because um, why do you keep going and what keeps you going? And when you're down as, as far down as Corey is, depressed out of her mind, um, her father suffering clinical depression, her mother deceased. I mean, this is one really despairing woman. Mm-hmm. And to keep forging ahead is most fascinating and I find I enjoy the reaction of my readers who find it gripping yeah. and inspiring that against odds you keep forging ahead until you create something really beautiful. Yeah. Well and I think there's a lot of those similar kind of stories in our community, you I know think so. where someone, you know, only had one parent there that's that's dealing with either mental illness or the loss of a job or whatever it might be and then kind of overcoming those odds and how you know we do need we do need god we do need divine sovereignty to carry us through and um i just love that theme throughout the book it's a really beautiful thing so you're you're so you actually worked in these mushroom mines so you're talking you're getting you got firsthand pictures in your head that you're writing these things out and the novels are highly visual because i'm a visual learner yeah and as, as a result of that uh people who read it can actually picture this on the silver screen. Yeah. This is music to my ears. Yeah. Because the author's end game dream right. is to maybe um, see them on the, the, the turned into a film someday. I, I would love that. Yeah. But it's highly visual. You actually can picture this exactly. Yeah. As you read through the books. That's what I most remember, you know, reading the books. It's like how much I felt like I really, I've never been in the mushroom mines, but I feel like I know what they, <laughs> yeah. I feel like I know what it felt like just because as you're, as you're going down into it and the darkness of it and uh, just all the different scenes there, I can still picture so many of them. I'm not going to ruin it for the, for anyone that's going to read the book, but 
Um, it's great stuff. It's a big challenge. You know, I, I tried to give the reader a sense of what that locale might be like. Mm-hmm. It's always a challenge for an author. Yeah. And then you grew up in the Center Hill area, you said? I'm yes. A, you went to the Center Hill Church? Yeah, we were uh, very attached to Catanning churches. My father was superintendent of um, Union Avenue Methodist. Okay. But once we were uh, country-bound, uh, we made it a point to uh, join a church out there, Center Hill Church of the Brethren. Yeah. Very old church from the early 1800s. Oh, yeah. And yeah. that becomes the focal point. That's yeah. one of the really big foci of the entire sequence. And you have an excerpt for us from there uh, sure, as well? Yeah, yeah, there, yeah, there would be. Um, on Wednesday evening, Jude and his grandma walked with a quiet reverence into the old Center Hill Church of the Brethren. Dating from the early 1800s, the church evoked an array of hallowed emotions in Jude. When presenting a talk to commemorate the anniversary of this old southwestern Pennsylvania building some years ago, he had done considerable research. Did you know that Thomas Jefferson was president when the early believers started worshiping on this hill? So, oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> were you aware that when Jefferson and the founders contemplated the Louisiana Purchase, our forebears contemplated the purchase of this land for the church site? Let me put it this way. Jefferson negotiated the Louisiana Purchase to grow a nation. Our ancestors negotiated the Center Hill Purchase to grow a church. Um, and that is a time warp in, in m- many rural country churches. Yeah. And so the church represents a time warp. The novel is set in 88. Right. There's all kind of stuff going on culturally. But that is a world that is still intact. It's got a 40s, a 50s, a 60s feel. Yeah. The tradition of door-to-door Christmas caroling, for instance, had died many years earlier, even in country churches. But the practice was very real even to this day at Center Hill. The community breakfast, quilting bees, summer festivals, communal apple butter churnings, soup and salad dinners, church work days, all welcomed by church and area people, were still going strong. Yeah. The good country folks supported these activities in large numbers and looked to each other for community. Yeah. And I, I don't know, I love all the historical references back because people have forgotten what's what all happened here. And, yeah. w- and when you put it in the words of <laughs> that, that church started when Thomas Jefferson was president, um, you know, there's there's so much history there that has to be forgotten. And just to get, bring that back a little bit or to, or to just drive around the area with that in yeah. the forefront of your mind. Um, is just incredible. Yeah, look at the cemeteries. Just any of these old churches with their old cemeteries, go through them and find the number of Civil War soldiers and mm-hmm. think of their history. Yeah. These men fought. They were very possibly in the 103rd or maybe the 78th Regiment and probably saw action in many decisive campaigns in the Civil War. And there they lie. You yeah. Know, forgotten, unfortunately. Right. Yeah, and I um, when I was first reading the the novel, um, we were going. We had a church group, a, a family that lived right out by Center Hill Church, and so I was driving by it twice a week, uh, going out there. It's like every time I would drive by, I was thinking of this book and thinking of you know, that's where Jude and Corey uh, reconciled right there in the cemetery, and that's where um, you know that's where these certain scenes happened, and um, just thinking of all those different things. And it's really neat to kind of read the book and then go drive around, and you can see that the mushroom mines are still there. You know yeah. that that stuff is still there, um, still not the same operation obviously that it mm-hmm. once was, but. Um, all that stuff is still here, and the history that you're bringing out is going to renew for a, a, a different generation that that Catanning is not a place yeah. to be embarrassed to be from. Like, it's that, a place to be proud of the history. You know, that is the intent. And for people who um, enjoy the area, the geography is actually used 
precisely. Mm-hmm. In the cemetery, I talk about the, the big um, monument they're at. It is there. It's a real monument. Yeah. You can see Adam Bowser's name, that he was born in the late 1700s. Right. And that's where they're reconciled. So people who have done this take a walking tour. Mm-hmm. It, it really makes it come to life. But I, it's one of my hopes that our viewers and, and the readers of, of these novels will come to believe again uh, in the community and, and our rich history. Mm-hmm. I just said, shared with a, a man last night, uh, he was enthralled to learn that a famous writer like Sinclair Lewis won the Nobel Prize in 1937, the mm-hmm. world's most coveted award. I yeah. mean, that's it. When you've won the Nobel Prize, you've made it. Right. <laughs> Sinclair Lewis says, of all the hotels all over Europe, all over England, all over America, and looking at our big cities, Chicago, New York, he said the Reynolds House in Catanning is one of his very favorite. Oh, wow. And he says that Harry Reynolds, the, the um, hotelier back then, was one of the best in the world. Wow. Little Catanning. So now explain to me the Reynolds Hotel. Where was that in Catanning? That one burned down in the 70s. Uh, that was... Um, uh, that was near uh, Jefferson and Market. It'd be a second, I think, the second shop down okay. from Jefferson. Okay. Yeah, going toward the bridge on the right side. So right here that downtown. Was house. Yeah. Wow. See, that's uh, that's the kind of stuff that has been totally forgotten. I'm assuming. Oh yeah. I'm, gu- I'm guessing that nobody listening to this right now knows that that was yeah. that was the case, yeah. but um, now it's recorded for all of history, right? <laughs> well, in the Reynolds House, the Alexander, the Stime Hotel. Yeah. These were majestic buildings in their day, complete with the Victorian bric-a-brac. I'd yeah. seen the ballrooms in some of them. I know you've talked about the abundant. the theaters too, right? Yeah, I mean, they the were, theaters, yes. yeah. And you, you told me a story one time about, wasn't it the first uh, brick theater was built here because they said that all the other ones were burning down and they said not this one? The old Columbia Theater yeah. had been the Wick theater yeah. when uh, John Wick first built it. Uh, yeah, opera houses were going up in flames, theater yeah. houses, and he said that won't happen to mine. <laughs> it was the first three-story, all-brick, all-cement building uh, anywhere. Yeah, right here in Little Catania. It was just torn down, what, two years ago now. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know a lot of people were, were pretty upset that that happened. It's unfortunate that it went into such disrepair, but um, hopefully someday we'll have something like that again. We look to the future. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, I don't know if you have maybe one more excerpt from us. We talked about maybe one from like the Catanning area from the book that would be something um, that we could point to. Yeah, let me just see here. Uh, this is uh, actually a later novel. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, this will be novel five, but we're down at the river here. And okay. we don't want to confuse our readers, but the, the, the ongoing, the, the storyline continues. And Jude and Corey are sitting down. They're on their way to Pittsburgh to a production of Hamlet. And they sit in the pavilion down by the river. The river traffic was particularly robust as lots of people had chosen a leisurely ride on the river to while away the hours on this beautiful summer evening. I didn't know so many people enjoyed water walking in Riverfront Park, but on this evening, many strollers and jollers passed as we hatched our plan. This is Jude mm. writing in his journal. Okay. By far my favorite part of the evening was the appearance of the classic cars that lined Water Street and even dotted the park here and there in anticipation of the upcoming car cruise. Truth be told, the classic cars made concentration on our improvised Hamlet scene quite difficult. I was particularly struck by several of the cars parked near our end of the park, a 56 Buick Roadmaster, a black 57 Plymouth, a 56 Blue Ford, and so on. Music coming from the nearby river stage floated through the evening air like a wisp 
a thistle borne on the breeze. As this was August, the month, the month in which Elvis Presley died, the singing group down on the river stage was honoring the king of rock and roll by playing exclusively Elvis tunes. I jotted down a few of the ones we listened to as we worked in the pavilion. I'm Yours, Chapel in the Moonlight, Love Me, An American Trilogy, and so on. Having completed their plan, Jude and Corey bade goodbye to Charles, departed the riverfront park, and meandered down the walkway toward the Citizens Bridge. They descended the stairs to the river and walked under the bridge. A large number of pigeons, the abiding inhabitants, cooed as they flew solo or in clusters. Remember when we stood up there in the middle of the bridge and threw the roses, Corey began. I wonder whatever became of them. And so on. So I'm always using local, yeah. uh, local settings. Well, I can just picture that too. As you cross the, you know, cross Water Street, go down the stairs under the bridge. I mean, I just literally just made a video last week where I made yeah. that very walk, and so it's like it brings up all my memories as well as, um, you know, bringing up uh, another piece of the story. I just, I don't know. It yeah. just takes me to a different place. <laughs> well, I, I, I guess I could say it's a literal use yeah. of setting instead of an imaginary. Yeah, use. <laughs> absolutely. These things are precisely described. Yeah, yeah, but so I love it. Worse. I don't know if that's the way to do it, but that's what I've done here. I think it's great because I, I think many people that are listening to this have taken that very walk. And so it's, oh, yes. it's extraordinarily relatable uh, for me and for probably everybody else. And that's just, I, I love that. Thank you for that. So with your area, your love for the area, your research of the, of the history, all those things, I'm, I'm really interested to kind of get your take on, on the future of Catanning because you've been here since you know, what, what you're... Born 46. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so you were here for kind of the, the glory days of Catanning and then a lot of, a lot of the difficult things too with factory closures and all that yeah. kind of stuff. We had a wonderful Jewish population of a couple hundred, a couple hundred people. Yeah. I, I my, my, myself did not know. Um, it was a, a group as large as it was, but uh, they were brilliant merchants and they had turned Catanning into this, uh, this cultural mecca and a, a kind of shopping paradise. Yeah. The, uh, all the men's stores and the ladies' stores back there in the 50s. Yes, I, I do. Uh, remember that very, very vividly. So what was that like as far as, like, I mean, just walking up and down Market Street, how different from today? Five men's stores, very successful. I talked to a man last night. He worked in Einstein and Camel. That man had hired 10 students to work from the holiday, through the entire holidays. 10 young men working wow. to, to handle the volume of people coming in out of that store. And that was one of five men's stores. Einstein and Camel, Gruskin, Silverblatt's, and so on. Just pulsating with activity. Yeah. yeah. So now, I mean, you've seen the kind of the decline and the emptying of Market Street, and now we're, I believe we're I believe we're in the very beginnings of seeing hopefully a retail comeback. Um, but it's it's not going to be the same as it was. Uh, it's going to be something different and something hopefully still good. I mean, what are your what's your take on the future of the city? What do you think What do you think Catanning's going to need to kind of complete this comeback mm -hmm. that we're on now? Just in your, your opinion. Yeah, well, I don't know that I have much to say that's of any consequence. I commend the people who have done great work and started a comeback. Right. Um, Light Up Night, I mean, that, that was a phenomenal success. Uh, I'd go with our strength. Um, trails have become so big in our area. I'd like to see that developed. Uh, horse trails, maybe, in the area. Yeah. Why not? Southwestern PA is beautiful. Armstrong County would be a perfect place for um, bike trails, mm -hmm. walking trails, horse trails. Um, I know we're ripping up 
rail lines everywhere, but we have a rail line on the other side, and uh, these train rides have become very popular in some communities. Yeah. I can envision a day when train rides start here, and we have really nice train cars, uh, the eating cars, the dining cars, and all that, and um, that could be immensely popular going north. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I mean, I just think you're, you're talking about the natural beauty is one of the major assets. And I know we've talked at length, too, about just the history of our area. And I don't, you know, the things that you're bringing back in the book from a historical perspective, uh, it would be really fascinating to see it become a movie and to see kind of historical markers around more of that kind of stuff to, to allow people when they come here to begin to understand, you know, the history of the area. And not only, not only guests, but even the people that are from here, yes. uh, for the people of Catanning to understand their history and all mm-hmm. those kinds of things. There's a very famous author. His name is John Updike. Uh-huh. Uh, John Updike is a Pennsylvania boy. I uh, brought in one of his novels here. Yeah. John Updike, I brought to Catanning back in the um, kind of early 90s, but he was astounded coming off Catanning Highlands. It was April. Leaves were still off the tree. Uh-huh. We were at the top of the hill, and he looked down over Catanning. And he was amazed at its beauty. Yeah. What a beautiful town nestled along the river. This is great. Yeah. That's a view we see and take for granted. Absolutely. But we should not do that no. because people <laughs> who come to our area for the, t- the first time are astounded. And then he later wrote in this novel, Licks of Love, he makes this sentence in, um, a, uh, in a novel called Rabbit Remember. He just makes this passing, passing statement. They had had enough of it, the chemicals, the presses, the hours until 7, 8. Only one of them even stayed in the state, and she's way out near Pittsburgh, a nice suburb up along the Allegheny. Oh, wow, okay. <laughs> and he's talking it's about Catania. Mu- yeah. yeah. It's very muted, but he's definitely hearkening back to his uh, wonderful stay here in Catania. He loved it. Wow. That's the natural beauty we take for granted. Yeah. But we yep. need to capitalize on that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that part, and then we talked history, and, um, you know, you talk about, you know, the original town, um, yeah. the Indian village, and you talk about Camp or all those kinds of things that we just we just for, have forgotten yeah. <laughs> for yeah. as a most part as a yeah. population. Yeah, if I were to try to uh, bring the town into a kind of a comeback, I would hit that real hard. First major battle of the Seven Year French and Indian War, mm-hmm. um, Seven Years War is called internationally. We locally call it French and Indian War. Right in Europe and England, it's called the Seven Years War. First decisive battle right here, we tend to underestimate the importance, um, paramount importance of that battle. And that, that, I mean, we've talked about it recently, and there have been plays written about it, but I think we need to continue that mm-hmm. and uh, speak of the, uh, the vast importance of the history in the area. Yeah. Yeah, I know we've talked a little bit about, you know, maybe like a amphitheater, some kind of historical center. Like if you could rebuild and kind of... Uh, rebuild the original town so to speak or rebuild the camp or something like that and if you had a theater in there something that was just you know, something where schools could visit or people from outside could come and visit and just kind of yeah. get that history so it's not so it's not lost because if another generation doesn't doesn't begin to talk about it mm-hmm. you know, we're going to lose a lot of that a lot of that stuff you and I have talked about that before mm-hmm. i really think if you were to go after federal funding yeah. the big grants and um, our listeners will be appalled when you hear the dollar sign. But money is uh, available for this, as it was for Riverfront Park. Yeah. That was a huge sum of money. Oh, yeah. Congressman Murtha and others. That kind of money is available. And if you were to accentuate 
the uh, Delaware Indian, Lenny Lenape Indians, and make this be a place where you could study the, the Indian culture yeah. and rebuild uh, a fort, a simulated fort mm-hmm. of what was done in the 18th century. I think it'd be fantastic, both for educating our people about what Indian Native American culture was like, but how the frontiers people were living in this county back in the 1700s. Yeah. So you'd have this educational fort that would be a replica of the actual forts of the day, mm-hmm. but it would also have the modern conveniences, the museums and the, the auditorium for uh, cinemas, plays, whatever. Yeah. I think what an amazing addition that would be. And I, I mean, for me, the future of Catanning is not going to be necessarily the comeback of the manufacturing, those kinds of things. Like you're not going to bring back Catanning Steel or any of those. No. Those places aren't going to return, at least to the downtown area in any capacity. And so when you look at the future of Catanning, I think it has to be exactly what you're saying, accentuating the history of the nature and become more of a tourist uh, tourist town moving forward, and um, I just—it's an incredible idea to me. I, if there's anyone out there that wants to take on that project, yeah. right? Let's start going after some of the federal dollars and, and Look what make that happen. Foxburg. Yeah, Foxburg was next to nothing compared to um, you know a town like Catanning, right? Uh, being the uh, county seat and so on, and yet it's a big success story up there. Absolutely. So if they can do that with so little, I mean, imagine what could be done here if we were to pour the resources into it in a magnificent, uh, big, um, well-conceived plan. Yeah. And I think for me, a lot of it all, it comes back to mindset because I think... Uh, from from a uh, from the people of Catanning don't have the mindset that they're valuable uh, to that that this town should be anything. It's kind of like when you begin to think that you're worthless as a person, then you begin to think that your town is worthless as a whole. And so it, once we begin to change that mindset a little bit, and I think that that's where we're beginning to see now, um, hey, this town is worth investing in. And then you have the investor class, the people that have the resources to pour into it. You know, it's worth it to take one of these little houses that you can get for $9,000 now, and it's worth it to turn it into a nice rental because there's becoming more of a market there. Or it's worth it to, you know, fix it up and flip it because you're in a historical neighborhood or whatever that might be. And then maybe it's worth it to build a hotel on the river like there is in Foxburg or to pour some money into matching dollars for a federal grant. or what. And it just begins to snowball, and then you can end up with a situation like Foxburg. But we have 10 times the resources that they do. Yes. So when you, I mean, the beauty is the same here. Certainly, infrastructure is a whole different story here than it is in Foxburg. Way more uh, resources that way. And then you have the county seat. You already have a nice population here. Um, you know, there's just so many, so many advantages that we have if we could just grab onto it. Yeah. It takes a vision. Yeah. It takes energy of the sort you, you're manifesting there. Yeah. Look at what's happened to Brookville, Indiana, and, and many towns where they have historical districts. Mm-hmm. And they've had big federal monies there that have come in and allowed them to restore the historical districts. Yeah. It's amazing what's happened in some of these small towns. I'd like to see that happen here. Yeah. Many of the good homes are torn down, but we still have Victorian gems in this town. Oh, my. Yeah. Many are being restored now. Mm-hmm. And I commend the people doing it. But we could do more with the older buildings. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you picked all along Water Street. If all those oh, houses yeah. became bed and breakfasts and uh, could kind of be a, a destination place to feed the other tourists and uh, uh, trail activity, that would just be incredible for our city. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, going back now, I just want to talk a little bit more about your, your childhood. You grew up in Catanning, all those kinds of things. Your dad worked in worked in some of these stores downtown, yes, right? Yeah. And went to church here. You've overcome, overcome a lot of loss in your life and obviously been very successful. 
I think that shines through in your novels, this kind of like overcoming through God's, through God's uh, providence. Um, just tell us a little bit about some of the loss in your life and some of the things that you've been through, because I think a lot of that would speak to uh, some of the listeners here. I hesitate to talk too much about my life, you know, yeah. but at the same time, if it can give anyone a little bit of inspiration. Right. Dad was killed when I was seven, really tragic accident, um, coming into the holidays. Um, we buried him Christmas Eve, if you can imagine that. At seven years old? I was seven. Wow. We had six siblings. There were seven of us, seven, nine, 11, a house full of little kids, a pretty substantial financial debt. It was not a pretty picture. Yeah. But my mother was a woman of incredible faith and strength, and she managed to navigate that, those perilous shoals. And she's a, a woman who was beloved because of her faith and strength. And some people in the viewing audience might, might have known my mother. But we also have a cardiac affliction. It must be a gene, uh, Andy. I don't, I don't know how to describe it, but all five of my brothers died really very young, and they were good, successful, beloved men. Um, and my first heart attack occurred when I was 37. So wow. yeah, yeah, we've, had, we've had a lot of loss. But if you take the point of view I have, that God is omniscient, he's sovereignly controlling it all, it was his master plan, and I don't expend psychic energy fighting against God because he didn't get it right yeah. or didn't treat me properly. I, I just don't go there. I have tried my whole life to do the best I can with, with what I have. Hmm. And uh, so the, the novels do, do speak to that. But it also speaks to a kind of a holy boldness and a faith mm-hmm. and a risk-taking thing, which I think is very evident in you. Yeah. But here's one example. I was asked back when I was a 29-year-old young professor to head up a new organization, the Friends of Milton's Cottage. The Milton Society of America asked me to do that. That's a pretty prestigious group of professors. Yeah. Very well organized and, and famous. I was in over my head. I didn't know what to say, but I said, okay, I'll do it. But it meant I had to get IRS tax-exempt charitable 501c3 status. I did all the work. In over my head, I felt, but I did it. We helped save the only home, only standing home where John Milton finished Paradise Lost. Big success story. That caught on. It led to the International Milton Symposia, the biggest conference of them, John Milton ever. That led to my meeting the Queen of England there. I mean, it's just been a scaffolding thing that went up, 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 up. Interesting. But it all started with my saying, yeah, I guess I'll do it. (laughs) Yeah. That one little step of, yeah, like, yeah, into yeah. faith. And so you don't know the end game. You don't know. Yeah. If you say yes to God and have the faith to believe that he's here with you through the dark yeah. and the years of wondering, the, the quiet, difficult years, I've, I've just always hung on to that, that in time, in God's good way, uh, it'll work out. I love that saying, gold fears no fire, and the hotter the fire, the purer the gold that comes forth. Wow. Because it is it is a way of testing and molding and fashioning our inner character. Yeah. So I'm, I would want to say that to the audience members, those going through really deep water out there. I, have to, I understand. I sympathize. I have compassion with their struggles. But sometimes it takes that step. Um, I think our viewers will be bored with you know, my story. But, but this can inspire. Here's one more. I was asked to head up an international poetry meeting in England. Poets from all over the world. So I'd have to look after them for a seven-day, very complicated program. Every moment of seven days, it was very vast. 
people from all over the world and pretty well-known poets. So I said, okay, I'll do it. I managed to get a big chunk of money. I brought in America's poet laureate and another famous poet who became another poet laureate. For wow. our viewers, I'll remind them, that's the top poet in the nation. Yeah. Those guys had enough confidence in the way I was handling the poetry meeting, they allowed me to make uh, documentary films on them, which I did. Oh, wow. Those documentary films became pretty successful, and I had screenings of those in distant places like Cairo, New York City, and just a phenomenal success. So here I am in my study thinking, do I do this, this venture of saying yes and taking on this enormous amount of work? Little did I know that God had in mind all these successive stages. So for me, it's, it's a big thing to say yes to uh, the challenges that present themselves. So do you attribute some of that mindset to your mo mother? I mean, to, to lose your father at such a young age and then to lose all five brothers, you know, through adulthood, all, all, young, all at yeah. younger ages. Yeah. I mean, that, that kind of loss, uh, our culture would say should be crippling. And, and yet for you, it hasn't, it hasn't seemed to cripple you at all. It's only well, you spurred you on to God's I mean, providence. It's, it's been very difficult. Yeah. But I haven't caved into it. Right. And these characters don't cave into it. They keep yeah. forging ahead. I love that. And, and that's, that's why many, many people are drawn to them. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, perseverance. Just, failure is a state of mind. And yeah. It, it's not the track record of failures. It's not the track record of defeats. Um, it's a state of mind. And as long as you don't succumb to it and think, I'm a loser, mm -hmm. I can't do this, other people are making it, but I won't. Yeah. When you start thinking that way, you're trapped inside the prison house of your own brain. And that person needs help, and that's why I love preaching the gospel. Yeah. That's where the hope is. And I, I just said in a sermon rather recently, Second Corinthians 5.17, I think, Behold, you are a new creation. All things are new. Yeah. That's exciting. People need to hear that. Beautifully said. Uh, the drug addicts that uh, were sitting right there, they need to know that they have a new beginning. Yeah. And not a patched up old model, literally a new start. Right. And I think that's sometimes when you read a novel and it's like happily ever after at the end, you know, you think, well, that's that's fantastical. That that that, that that's that's not how the world actually works. Yeah. But for you, um, there's been great loss. And yet here we are at the end, and it's like God's grace still pushing you on. God's grace still making a way for, for all of these dreams that he placed in you decades and decades ago and still coming to fruition because you're just willing to say yes and take one more step. You never know if you've done it well, but yeah. I love that notion, Acts 1.8, that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be empowered. Absolutely. And that Greek word there is dunamis, yeah. from which we get dynamite. And I think people just don't understand that when you have the Holy Spirit in you, you, you have access to an enormous power. Mm. And so what happens is, it's not that some people get a lot of the Holy Spirit and someone else gets just a little bit. It isn't that at all. Right. The Holy Spirit lives in you or he doesn't. Mm. The problem is people are not accessing the power. They don't know how to access it. They don't know how to command it. They don't know how to use it. Right. I think maybe what I've done is because I'm essentially a weak person, I think. Yeah. I just somehow said, I relinquish this to you, Holy Spirit. Then done. Do, do it. Yeah. You live your life in and through me. I'll be a, a willing, consecrated servant as much as I can. Yeah. You carry on. And there is a submission. There is a yielding to his headship. I feel the That's same. That's wonderful. I feel the same thing in my life, 100%. It's I like see it. every time, every time there's a moment of, 
and I, I wish I would be there more often, you know, but in that moment of weakness is where we're the most strong because that's where we kind of give up and just give it over to God. And then he, he does what he does. Yeah. Um, and I just think it's so powerful because you look at our area and all the loss that's happened here. I've talked in previous podcast episodes with other people that um, I feel like when the loss of industry, when all that stuff happened, it was not just an individual depression from family to family. It was like a cloud of depression kind of descended over the whole area. And I think that we're beginning to see that fog kind of be cut through with the with the light of, of God's grace and, and the gospel. Yeah. And um, the more and more that happens, the more and more the fog will, will be burned off and yeah. we'll, we'll be coming into a new day, so to yeah. speak. Yeah, I like that. I like your energy. I like your vision. Yeah. I completely concur with it. Yeah. Well, my next question was, how do we transfer that from an individual uh, to, to an area? But I think, I think we've already kind of picked that up. I think we'll probably hit that pretty hard, yes. Yeah. And so... Um, I just love that coming back to the story of your book, um, the story of this loss and redemption. Uh, I think those lessons can be kind of a microcosm for, for the whole uh, story of our area. And I think your book's going to be an important piece of that. Anything else you want to say to that? Um, you know, I don't know, maybe just to, to read a passage to let the readers understand the depth of uh, Corey's despair. I mean, she is hit really hard. Uh, by uh, the depression and the, the years of separation. Absolutely. Let's see if I can turn to a passage here. Yeah. <clears throat> Tears formed in her eyes, and she looked away. This is her first reconciliation. He saw her brush her cheek. Five years is a long time, Jude. Again, she paused, gathering strength to push the thought to its terminus. I cried myself to sleep for months. Did you know that? Memories of the pain of separation and the anguish of loneliness swarmed in her brain. Hours of sitting alone on Vinland Deer, piles of wet tissues on the kitchen table, daily treks to an empty mailbox, days of waiting by a silent phone. She was frustrated at not being able to articulate the hurt and make him understand what she had endured during the quiet years. Do you know what it's like to lie in a lonely bed and ache for love? ache all over to love and to be loved and to show love the way God intended. I used to hold the pillow tightly and fantasize that it was you. I wanted you so much. My pillow was wet with tears. She stopped speaking for a moment and looked away. It got so bad I couldn't stand to go to bed at night. So there's realism here, Andy. You know, as, as Corey is um, speaking very honestly yeah. uh, about, about her pain, uh, but but they make it, you know. They they get through this. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, she. Um, well, I think we've all kind of experienced that at one moment or another in our lives, where you kind of like the depths of 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 despair, so to speak. Yeah. And some people, um, some people in that moment turn to God, and uh, then then they can be rebuilt, kind of from yeah. that moment of being broken down. And some people stay there. Character is what you are in the dark. Yeah. What you are is not when you're riding the high places of success and prosperity and everything is working out. Yeah. What you really are all about is what you are in the dark. And that's when, where your true character will be manifest. Wow. And you don't know what that true character is until the testing comes. And you go into it wondering, can I do this? Mm-hmm. Can I get through this? And I, I, you're right. Uh, people in our audience have had these experiences. But some people are crushed by that through fear, intimidated into silence, immobilization. Yeah. Their will is paralyzed. Just sit. Yeah. The, the, the tendency for me, because of my heart attacks, and because all the brothers were dead, 
And because my, my doctor, whom I love with all my heart, said, you will retire. At 37, he said, you're done. Retire and stop traveling. I was a 37-year-old kid. Wow. That's a tough one. Absolutely. And, and I either had to hear him, looking at all the evidence, all the data, all the tests, or I had to plug into a different orientation which said, maybe, just maybe, God has in mind a higher level of healing for me than you and all your brilliance right. can see and understand. I had to plug into a different orientation. Yeah. In the dark, you're in an ICU room by yourself. Yeah. That can be a challenge. But character is what you are in the dark. And so that's why I don't ever resist challenges. Bring it on. Bring on the test. I, I really do mean that. And so the beautiful love you have here in Corey and Jude comes because they've been fire tested. Yeah, I love that. So kind of an overarching message for me is no matter how no matter how dark the night, uh, there can still be a, a new day at dawning, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, great stuff. So tell us, uh, just as we finish up, where, where can people pick up this book? How can they get a hold of yeah. it? And how can they connect with you if they the want to? The novel is uh, The Rose and the Serpent. It's uh, over at Catanning News here on Market Street. Uh, it can be ordered through Amazon. And uh, the second novel, The Pittsburgh Hamlet, uh, is a sequel to it. These are novels that all flow together. Yeah, It's the same characters, the same storyline, going in and out like a Harry Potter series or any uh, novel that continues as a saga. And I would say to my viewing audience, those who have read it, those who plan to read it, today sales are driven by reviews on Amazon and so on. It's Absolutely. amazing. Yep. Yeah. So uh, readers are buying books today based on the reviews and those one-line gem statements. Mm -hmm. you, know, you can't put this book down or what they, those sorts of things. Yep. So if people are motivated to help a, a local author, that's what they can do. And, and I say a huge thanks. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'll put all the links to the description for where they can purchase this thing. Go, go pick it up. Get connected with this series. Read the first one. Review it. And then uh, on this channel, too. I'll continue to do updates as all the books come out and we'll continue to promote what you're doing because I think it's incredible um, for the mindset of our area, for to bring back some of the history of our area. And this is going to be a piece that's going to drive us into the future. I just thank believe you. that with all my heart. Thank you. And I want to speak for the community and thanking you, Andy, for your vision, your energy, your drive, because you yeah. really are a spark plug in many ways. And I hear your name more and more. <laughs> I certainly appreciate that. <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. And uh, everybody, we'll see you in the next one.